Hi, everyone. Welcome back to our podcast, Tech Talk, uh, where we talk about various technology-related topics and uh, do a deep dive into one of the topics of, of, of our choice in every week. Uh, this week is a very special uh, episode as well because we have a guest, Eric Bailey, here with us, and we are here to talk about the A11Y project. Um, Eric is a designer who works for an agency in Massachusetts. Um, he also writes about usability and accessibility for publications such as CSS Tricks and Smashing Magazine. He is also one of the active maintainers of the A11Y project, and today we are pleased to talk to him about the about the project itself. Um, thank you, Eric, for joining us today. Really pleased that you could uh, uh, talk about your project. Uh, we are very excited. I think it's a, it's a really meaningful and powerful project, a y project. Um, so tell, tell us a little bit about the project and uh, how, how you got involved with it and your journey about Sure. Um, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here today. Um, and also, uh, kind of fun at the time of this recording, uh, it's actually Global Accessibility Awareness Day. Oh, so cool. we've got kind we of didn't a- know that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's a bit of a two for going on. Um, right. So uh, the, the A11Y project is, um, as you mentioned, is a project I help maintain. Um, and it is a open source resource for anybody who is interested in building um, accessible websites or web apps or apps. Um, and what it does is it provides uh, blog posts, resources, and a checklist that uh, anyone can read for free um, and you know, kind of find information that they may need on how to best make an experience work for assistive technology. Um, and the reason this is so important is uh, basically there are different ways to access uh, digital content, including apps and websites. And um, part of that is making sure that, you know, the same way I, as somebody who has, you know, who is sighted and can read things on a screen with my eyes, making that available the same way to somebody who has low or no vision and may need it read aloud by a uh, digital voice via a screen reader or some other form of assistive tech. Wow, that is that. that I mean, to be honest, I I didn't know about the project before Amit introduced it to me, and I thought this is this is such an amazing project, and this is quite necessary in current current world as well. I mean, I've come across various accessibility options when I buy a new phone. I usually go through all the settings to set it up for, for everything. And I usually go through the accessibility option. And I thought, you know what? There are so many things that are also helpful for, for so many options there are, which are also helpful for even me. And uh, I can imagine that would be, you know, quite helpful for people who need that kind of options. And uh, it is, it, there are a lot of things being done, but I also see that it's it's not the end of the journey at all. There is so much more that can be done and should be done in 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 this space. Yeah, I'm I'm just like you. Like the first time, you know, the first thing I do when I get a new app or a new uh, phone or a new piece of software is immediately go into the settings and be like, "All right, where are all those features that you're not telling me I have that are going to change my life?" Uh, <laughs> But yeah, you, you raise a really good point, which is, um, you know, accessibility features 
are designed specifically to help disabled people use technology, uh, but many of them um, are usable by all. So, you know, I'm, I'm of the belief that accessible design is good design. So presenting these options uh, to, to everyone and kind of not making distinctions around who can use them is a way to, you know, make technology work best for the person that needs it. Uh, personally, I use a few accessibility features. Uh, probably the one that jumps to mind is um, like a reduced motion experience on iOS. And uh, okay, that's we, we both are Android users. Okay, <laughs> well, I hope this isn't weird. <laughs> <laughs> no way. <laughs> okay, so, uh, yeah. so uh, I I wanted to understand. I mean, I think a lot of people. Uh, they're, they're hearing about accessibility as well as A11Y. So can you just tell us uh, what is it? What is A11Y for the benefit of all our, all our viewers and listeners? Sure. Um, so if you haven't heard it before, uh, A11Y is what's known as a neuronym, which is basically a fancy sounding word for acronym. Um, and it represents the 11 characters in between the letter A, which is the beginning of the word accessibility, and Y, which is the last letter in the word accessibility. Um, historically, it kind of bubbled up from Twitter where there used to be a shorter kind of character length. Uh, so people would use A11Y as a way to save space when tweeting. Um, and now it's been kind of codified as a way to talk specifically about digital accessibility. Um, and the interesting part about this is in English, accessibility has a few different meetings. So there can be the accessibility of information, which is like, you know, is it is it behind a paywall or is it like, you know, in an academic journal and really dense? That's not exactly what the A11Y project deals with. So when you use that acronym, it's a way to say like, I'm talking specifically about digital accessibility. I'm talking about like, how to use HTML in a way that works best with a screen reader or like how to make my CSS work in Windows high contrast mode. So it's a really good way to like cut through a lot of uh, generic Google search results if you're looking for information. Okay, so that's... Right. That, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, um, no, I was, I was thinking of the distinction, uh, digital accessibility and, you know, well, if, if, I want, if I want to talk about the other side of accessibility, it's the physical accessibility. And I used to work for uh, London Underground uh, here, in, here in UK. And um, um, whenever, whenever we made any change in, in the stations, or we had to think about the Disability Discrimination Act and all the things that we had to take into consideration when we were designing um, any kind of solution. And uh, yeah, of course, that, that is also an accessibility and, you know, there is a lot of um, things to consider when you're doing something, when you're doing physical design. But nowadays, obviously, especially after the pandemic, more of our lifestyle has become digital. And uh, it, was, it was happening slowly anyway. Now with the pandemic, we, we had a super boost on, on digital lifestyle and we have to absolutely have to think about everyone you know as an inclusive culture as as we go more and more digital we have to think about how everyone can be inclusive in our digital life and that's where i think it's so much powerful this project that you know that you're maintaining and uh, helping so many people to be inclusive and 
you know the the that so basically that's that's what my uh, understanding is that you know physical accessibility is one thing but now it's ever ever more important to have the digital accessibility uh yeah exactly what you said and how you said it um 1000 yeah. percent uh yeah so it it we it, it is sorry um it's interesting times right now, um, not only because of the global pandemic, uh, but right before, as you mentioned, um, you know, physical protections for like things like building codes um, have existed for uh, access for a while now. Uh, and that's due to a lot of work by activists in the disability space. But kind of right before the pandemic hit, um, you know, there were some landmark uh, legal cases, at least in the United States, um, which set precedent for digital experiences being considered um, kind of the same as physical in terms of these are services that you need kind of, and if access is restricted, uh, that is a problem. And at least in the United States, that's a civil rights problem as there are protections uh, the same way, you know, race or gender or religion are. Uh, so like you said, you know, um, pandemic, the pandemic has thrown a lot of this into, you know, very real, taking, taking it out of the abstract and making it very real. Um, the thing that pops immediately into my mind are vaccination scheduling and coordinating websites that are unusable by assistive technology. And so that's not like, well, I can't look at Facebook. <laughs> it's, it's, this is preventing me from accessing something that will save my life conceivably. And that yeah. is incredibly important. So, um, yeah. Okay. Wow. So, uh, I mean, uh, Yes, I mean, I've, I've built a website and Rinath also has built a website and uh, we do this uh, small test from Google, which is the Lighthouse Report. And Google has now started ranking websites based on how accessible they are and uh, whether they are mobile friendly or not. And in those accessible um, tests, they conduct, they give you a score and the score could be anywhere from 0 to 100, 100 being the best. Um, and I think A11Y project, uh, what do you say, um, complements it. I'm guessing because from what I've read your checklist, it tells you how to uh, structure a particular HTML page, what to uh, write in the tags and what to think and what not to uh, use in say the CSS uh, code, because that that will mean that the assistive technology, say screen readers uh, and uh, maybe uh, people, um, technologies that uh, transcribe the voice they can then and maybe video ads as well so those uh, things can be actually handled by these assistive technologies and uh, bring it accessible to more people so can you uh, talk a bit about that like how is actually a11y project complementing the google lighthouse report um yes although we don't have any um association with lighthouse sure. but I will say that I think it's very smart of Google to include uh, accessibility scores in Lighthouse, the same way performance and um, you know SEO and all these other concerns are, um, as a lot of them are intertwined. Uh, accessible websites tend to be performant websites, which is an interesting thing that we'll, we can definitely dive into. Um, but our checklist is 
uh, is community built. So um, the, the things that you look at as you go down the list to check your site against, a lot of them reflect the internal rules that uh, Lighthouse will use for its automated checks. So it's one of those things where you can kind of be reactive. So you can use Lighthouse and see what it flags uh, and then go chase down the errors and fix them. Or you can potentially be proactive, which is to look at the checklist and see if you're doing anything there. And uh, then after you've reviewed the checklist, run it through Lighthouse. Um, the other thing that I think is a real value for the checklist and for the A11Y project as an open source project is it's free um, and it's open and it's transparent, by which I mean that uh, the rule set isn't hidden behind uh, you know, an extension. It's something that anyone can reference. It's something that anyone can open an issue against. Uh, it's something that anyone can improve. So basically we wanna make sure that this is um, open and available to everyone uh, if they're so inclined. <laughs> Makes sense. Makes sense. And uh, I think, yeah, it's uh, it's important that it's uh, transparent because as you rightly said, Google tells you about those things. But once you test it, once you submit your website, but A11Y project tells you upfront, like, okay, these are the standards that you need to follow. And if you follow this, your website will be more accessible. So, uh, so I mean, we keep talking about these assistive technologies. And I'm sure that uh, we might be uh, limited in the way of our own experiences. Uh, so can you uh, tell us a bit more about these assistive technologies across sight, hearing, um, and then uh, maybe speech, and what are the kind of assistive technologies that are currently available to people? Sure. Um, there are a ton. <laughs> um, my, my favorite little get you thinking example is I'm wearing glasses, and technically that's assistive technology. <laughs> um, so yes, yes. Uh, traditionally, though, more um, in accessibility, there's the notion of poor, which is uh, perceivable, operable, understandable, and robust. And those are the four kind of main categories of how to think about uh, disability. So perceivable would be if you can see something or if you can't and what you can do about it. So examples of assistive technology here would be uh, screen readers, which is, I think, kind of the example that most people are familiar with, which is a, a piece of software that will read through the document object model um, via something called the accessibility tree, which is like the DOM, but for your entire computer. Um, and it will read out information. Uh, so if you have a button that says, you know, save preferences, so long as you're using a button element, it will go, ah, button, save preferences. And then you can say, you know, click save preferences um, and it will do it. And that's really cool. Uh, there's also um, for perceivable, if you have low vision, uh, there are screen magnifiers um, as well as uh, browsers have the ability to bump kind of globally all the text on any web page ever. So uh, that's something to definitely be aware of as we age and our eyesight starts to go and we find ourselves bumping up the font size just a little bit and a little bit more, maybe a little bit more. Um, I, I Unfortunately, I read Hacker News and I've 
blown their text size up real big because <laughs> it's teeny tiny. Um, for understandable, um, this is a little bit of a tricky one in that it deals with cognition and um, kind of digital literacy. So uh, for here, um, you want to kind of make sure that somebody doesn't have to use assistive technology, which is a bit of a wrinkle, which is like, if you make something for a global audience to consume, uh, making sure that it's as direct and as straightforward as possible. Um, so if you're using metaphors, make sure that they are, you know, they work across different cultures. Um, if you are using kind of imagery, make sure that it makes sense. You want to have cultural considerations. You know, red may mean bad in certain cultures, but it may mean good in certain cultures. So that, that kind of thing. Um, and then kind of just by virtue of using HTML, like a lot of cognition stuff can be addressed in that you can copy a word, you can look it up, um, you know, don't use jargon, save somebody the effort of having to look up that jargon maybe. Um, operable, I'm getting my poor mixed up. Operable is um, kind of what I talked about a little bit before uh, where you want to give things accessible names by using semantic uh, markup. So for this, um, a really cool example of assistive technology here would be voice control, um, such as uh, Dragon or uh, Mac OS actually has uh, voice command software built in. So if, I, uh, if I'm paralyzed, if I don't have the use of my limbs, I can actually use my voice to operate uh, a digital interface. Um, it's, it's a lot of fun actually too, if you haven't tried it before. Um, so you can actually say, click save preferences. And I have actually seen, I have actually seen the voice command, um, you know, where you, I, I was thinking, how could it, I mean, it, it could become quite complex and how could you, you know, have commands for each of the different, you know, variation of operations that you can do on screen. But then I was actually really impressed because the way it was done is like, you have a screen grid, you bring up the grid and then you tell, oh, click on, you know, B7 or, you know, that's how you kind of locate each place in the grid. And I thought that was, that was amazing. And a lot of the times, I mean, when um, smartphone devices like Siri or Alexa came about, um, I thought, okay, this probably not, this is probably not going to be very popular because, you know, they're much faster way of doing things rather than, than saying it out loud. But actually now I have one at home and it is, it is quite convenient. And you, you start to think about, you know, these, these voice controlled devices can, can be so much powerful because I, I now control all my light, my heating, everything with, with, with the smart home device. And um, it has benefit for everyone, you know, improving this kind of technology. Yeah. Yeah. I, I also have smart lights and it, it was a game changer. Um, but yeah, these, these kinds of smart home automation solutions are definitely um, very useful in the disability commu community and, um, you know, barring any weird bugs, very well received, as I understand it. Um, another interesting thing about uh, voice control is if you ever kind of want to have your mind blown 
um, look up a video of somebody who uses uh, voice control software as a daily user use it. Um, you know, when we do it, it's kind of a novelty and we're, we're doing it to explore a new piece of tech, but when it's their daily driver, the same way we don't think about typing and then somebody comes in and watches us type at 60 words <laughs> a minute. Um, it's, it's pretty incredible. Um, I would also say, I know there are hands-free developers out there who use voice control and um, it's really cool to watch. And it makes me think I don't know <laughs> as much about programming as I should because the, the grammar and the lexicon that they use. And meanwhile, I'm like, I think an open bracket goes here. I'm not sure. <laughs> wow, that is amazing. I wouldn't have thought that 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 straight away because yeah, so, such complex syntax when you're coding. And a lot of the times I spent hours because I forgot a comma somewhere. And <laughs> yeah, I would like to see that actually. I'll definitely YouTube, Google it or YouTube it after. Yeah. So so what are the other ones? Uh, R E. I think you were talking about the poor. No, I think yeah. <laughs> yeah, last last is I got my order a little bit wrong, but uh, last is robust, um, and robust is one of my favorites, which is um, basically make it uh, not brittle and not fragile. Um, so you strip away the CSS from a website, you still have something that works. Um, you load something on mobile. Um, and it looks good on mobile. You load it on a tablet, it looks good on a tablet. You use reader mode, you can read it. Uh, so making this technology interoperable and fault tolerant. And um, you know, we, we don't think of that necessarily as assistive technology a lot of the times, but uh, responsive design, so the ability for a design to work on your phone the same way it works on a tablet is huge uh, because if I'm zooming my screen in, I don't have a separate experience. It just works. Um, if I am using a low quality feature phone, um, it will just work. I don't have to have a fancy Apple laptop that costs thousands of dollars. Um, if I'm on a PlayStation for whatever reason and using their browser, it just works. You know, maybe I want to order some pizza and I'm too, you know, I can't be bothered to get my laptop out. Um, so we don't make distinctions around how somebody is using or why, uh, because we largely can't know and robust kind of handles that. So it's, it's not assistive technology per se, but it's a mindset that makes things very friendly towards assistive tech. Okay. So That's Sorry, yeah, that, so, that's, that's quite fascinating because um, I love I love standardization and you know to be able to have a list of different aspects and of, of things to think about when you're designing stuff is actually really helpful for for you know for any designer or architect or engineer or coder because then they can sort of go go by the list and you know have a standardized things to to sort of check check off which is which is very helpful when you're designing um so going back to um you know you know you were saying um you know wearing glasses is uh, is is a form of assistive technology and i think that is actually quite a powerful statement because a lot of the times we don't actually think about how we are being assisted of different things and um 
another thing I, um, I, I know of an analogy, uh, which I think is actually quite powerful uh, to, to sort of describe disability, because a lot of the times we, I mean, if, if you know, if, if you were to um, ask what's the definition of disability, that could actually have a lot of gray area. But um, I, I sort of came across this analogy, which I think is, um, is, is amazing in describing what disability is. And that basically is, um, imagine, you know, we woke up uh, one day or say tomorrow, and suddenly everyone can fly. All humans can fly. Uh, but for some reason, I can't. And, you know, everyone is going to the library, going to work. And obviously, because everyone can fly, they're just, you know, flying to everywhere, wherever they want to go. Uh, but I don't have any problem with uh, not being able to fly because I can drive to work. I can, I can you know, because all the infrastructure are, are the same. I, I didn't have any problem yesterday uh, going around. And I don't have any problem today because I have all the things I need to live my life as I was living yesterday. It's just everyone else started to be able to fly. Now, you know, things are going totally fine. And, uh, you know, I'm living my life normally without any problem. Uh, but then a new building is being built. And uh, the architect, because now everyone can fly, forgot to put stairs in the building because no one else needs it. Now... I'm be, I've become disabled. I wasn't disabled before the building was built. Only because this architect, without thinking of the design for everyone, forgot to build stairs for me, today I've become disabled. I didn't become disabled the day everyone started flying because I had no problem living my life. It's the time when other people didn't take my needs into consideration. And I thought that was a really powerful analogy. Uh, in describing what dis disability is. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Um, in the disability community, um, there's the notion of the social model, which is uh, basically exactly what you described, which is uh, disability is a, mass, is a mismatch between um, kind of capability and environment. So it's less a problem to be fixed for the individual and more how do we as a society, you know, adjust to address these kind of failings for, for access, which is to say that exactly like you said, you know, the same way you forget to build stairs in a society where everyone can fly, uh, the same way why aren't buildings built with access ramps if we know that exactly. wheelchairs are present. Yes, um, absolutely. I mean, when we now think back, we are thinking that, oh, it's, it's an additional cost or additional, you know, waste of resource. Uh, you know, a, a lot of people might think that, oh, building this ramp or building. But, you know, if, if not, I mean, if you think back, you know, when you're thinking back, it feels like that. But if you were to think one step further, like if everyone could fly and you couldn't, then, you know, building stairs in a building is, is quite, you know, quite a necessity, you, anyone would think. But, you know, it, it's the same way. I mean, building ramp is a necessity because of it. Yeah, yeah. And one of my friends has a talk uh, called Selfish Accessibility that I quite like which is um, 
you know, if, if you can't be motivated by these notions, you know, understand that one day they may apply to you. So if you're making stuff, um, make it so that you could, your future self could use it. So like, you know, if everyone can fly and then one day, you know, it turns out anybody over the age of 40 can't fly or, you know, somebody hands you a really heavy load to transport for your job and you can't get off the ground. Like you're going to need those stairs. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. I think, uh, Rina, that was a very uh, interesting analogy. And uh, when we when we think about disability, and there is a lot of talk about diversity and inclusion, especially in the UK, it's, it's quite uh, prominent. The government is quite keen on uh, having all their digital services because UK is uh, quite... Uh, I'm not sure about the US market, but in UK, the government is quite active and upfront about uh, having accessibility, especially when giving digital services uh, to its uh, citizens. Um, and one of the key, uh, key things that keep uh, keeps coming up is diversity and inclusion. We have the um, have people from all different types of background and religious backgrounds, social backgrounds, um, and uh, different preferences, etc. And then inclusion, including everyone. So does accessibility fit into that? Uh, is it part of that inclusiveness or do we have to have a separate uh, uh, concept for that so that people who are disabled can be included as part of that? Because I think when we talk about diversity and inclusion in an organization, no one is thinking about, uh, I'm guessing no one is thinking about the disabled people. What What do you think about that? Yeah, um, personally, um, I think that... Uh, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion work is very vital, um, and it's also very intersectional. So it deals with uh, identity and how you identify both in private and as a public persona. And I think disability is a core part of that, uh, the same way age or gender or religion is. Um, in the States, um, it's a little different. <laughs> um, Anything that the government produces um, needs to be accessible. Uh, that includes procurement for physical goods and services, as well as digital content. Uh, and that's by way of the Section 508 Act. Um, and then kind of, as I mentioned earlier, um, private industries, there was a lot of kind of wiggle room for digital experiences you know if you are a restaurant and you are building a building for your restaurant you know the the americans with disabilities act which is uh ties into civil rights mandates that your building does need to be accessible but now as more stuff goes online um the question of what accommodation is gets blurry um because do you need to use a digital service to access a physical physical location if you're ordering groceries? Yes. So now there's precedent. Um, in terms of how that wraps into uh, diversity inclusion work, um, I think it's worth considering disability. Um, sometimes it's left out. I've seen a lot of positive movement on this front and I'm happy to see more and more private industries adopting DEI councils and uh, considering it part of how they conduct business. 
So I'm pretty optimistic on this front. Interesting because, uh, I mean, uh, so we, we both are uh, software uh, consultants, right? So we work on a lot of software projects and whenever we work in organizations, uh, they normally don't think about accessibility as a major feature that needs to be tested for. I mean, forget about uh, requirements. No one even wants to test. So I, I come from a testing background <laughs> and I'm like, okay, so now we're talking about non-functional testing. We talk about performance and security, but no one talks about accessibility. And, uh, and if someone talks about it, they say, okay, let's see if we meet the certain criteria and that should be good. But I think it's quite important to have that mindset right from the beginning, like right from the requirement itself, um, have the have the notion that this product is one day going to be used by someone with some disability and will they be able to use it? I think that's that notion is quite important. And uh, one of the reasons I reached out to you was um, I heard a talk uh, uh, from Scott Davis. I'm not sure if you've heard. He's He works for ThoughtWorks and he has uh, written plenty about accessibility. And um, one of the key things that he mentions about accessibility is that, um, I mean, if, if we want to make people think who think more in terms of capitalism is that think about this, there are a lot of people in the world who cannot access the internet and they have money. And if they can access the internet, then that money is uh, in your pocket. So how do you make the internet more accessible? So I think that's a very interesting concept because a lot of times when we think about the internet, it's just people with uh, proper limbs, proper eyesight, uh, proper hearing. Uh, and But there are a lot of people's um, who don't have a limb, um, who don't, ha who are paralyzed, who don't have uh, good eyesight, who have hearing problems, and they are not included. And if we include them, then it means there are more customers for your business. There are more services that you can offer to more people. And uh, I think that's a very powerful concept. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, w I wish more people thought that way. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I'm I'm optimistic. Um, this is the tenth anniversary of Global Accessibility Awareness Day. Um, and I'm seeing more companies adopting um, policies that are in line with, with this, um, as well as at least even being aware of the issue, um, which is great. Microsoft has gone through a huge transformation uh, in the accessibility and inclusive design space, and they're threading it into basically every layer, as far as I can tell, of how they conceive and build and maintain projects. Um, so if they can do it, yeah. you know, you can do it. If you <laughs> exactly. um, yeah. I think, I, uh... I've seen uh, this uh, Microsoft, I think there is a document, I think we'll share that along with the video as well, that they have uh, uh, put like, why do you need to consider accessibility? And they put a nice diagram about the different aspects in which a person needs to access a digital product or service and how they access it and what could be the possible uh, scenarios where a disabled person comes in and then uses it. So I think that's a nice diagram. And you're right, Microsoft doing huge in terms of uh, promoting this uh, features to the uh, general population. Yeah, they're also making a lot of money doing it. 
<laughs> I think I think um, it it has to be in a balance. If people are not making enough money, people will not push out for those features. So and uh, and uh, I think that's where uh, organizations are now thinking that okay, there's we have already reached a mass. Everyone is able to access, but then there's still a lot of uh, other people that who cannot access uh, the internet and uh, these digital services. How do we make? How do we reach them? I think moving on, let's let's again focus on some other topics around A11 Y project and why it's relevant, especially in the age of JavaScript. Mm-hmm. Now these days, uh, every other project, uh, every other website is built on using some form of JavaScript, and what that means is that uh, there is very less HTML used being used to create a website. So how does accessibility or even A11 by project A11 by project fit into that space where people are building using cutting edge web technologies uh, react angular and those kind of frameworks and then A11 by project applies only to html and css that's what i'm that's what i'm aware of i'm not sure if it applies to javascript as well so what should these websites be doing in order to make these websites more accessible sure um, we have a post on this uh, on the A11Y project. Um, okay. So there is a myth uh, that JavaScript does not affect accessibility. Um, it does. And the good news is modern uh, website building techniques, such as single page applications, um, can be made accessible. Um, and the kind of the thing I'd like to stress is, um, you know, they may serve HTML in a different way, but it's more about what HTML they're serving and why. So um, if you find yourself writing a div to contain the main content of your page, use the main element instead. Uh, and then somebody who using assistive technology can hop to it and say, ah, this is the main content of the page. I know what it is now. Um, and that's important. If you have uh, motor control issues, uh, that means it's a lot less work to get where you're going. If you can't see the screen, means you can quickly identify it without having um, the ability to visually parse the page and see what's in the center column with 16 point text. <laughs> um, JavaScript is actually really good for accessibility. Um, I may live to regret saying this, but there is a suite of um, attributes for HTML called ARIA. And uh, since you have a testing background, I think you'll actually appreciate this. ARIA is a way to programmatically communicate state. Um, So if you have an accordion, and it's in its collapsed state, you can use JavaScript to toggle an attribute to say, uh, you are collapsed. And when you, you're clicked, you're toggled into an expanded state. Um, and the same way you can build a testing harness to say like, is this expanded or collapsed? Tests are failing, oh no. <laughs> um, that state manipulation via JavaScript can be communicated to assistive technology. So a screen reader could, encounter this and say, ah, accordion collapsed. And no, okay, not only is there an accordion here, but it's in a collapsed state. And if it's collapsed, that means I can expand it 
And if I expand it, I can move it back to a collapse state. So that's huge. That's that's really cool, and that's important because that means the experience uh, between different you know modes of navigating the web are closer, um, which means that they're enjoying kind of the same level of experience uh, across the board. I, I think the I think the shortcut of saying this is uh, sort of follow the best practice. You yeah, know, follow the rules that uh, that are already there. Like you know, whatever is you know we in HTML or whatever is classed as the main object, you know, put that in in there. So it's all well identified and well labeled. It's it's kind of good coding practice to begin with. So yeah, it's just just be a good coder. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, if you're looking for a really easy way to get started, uh, the tab key is. Um, your best friend. So whatever you're working on, just mash the tab key a bunch, see if uh, visual focus, so a little ring around um, interactive elements to your links and your buttons, see if it will move to your links and to your buttons. And if it does, you can use space or return on your keyboard to activate them to either do a thing or go a place. If they don't, take a look at the markup under the hood and uh, change it. <laughs> But um, just doing that, um, you know, not even for your whole web experience, just whatever ticket you have right now for whatever feature, uh, just encapsulate it in that. Like that goes a huge distance towards making things interoperable and therefore accessible. That's that's kind of interesting because, um, I mean, me and a couple of friends, we were actually trying to build a website and we tried to use tab and one of the tab went from one tab. Uh, it, it didn't go in sequence, basically. It just went somewhere else. And I was like, okay, so if uh, if a person with uh, proper uh, hands and uh, pr proper, uh, I I'm able to use my keyboard and mouse. And if I'm struggling with that, imagine how would uh, assistive technology struggle with that same aspect of, okay, I want to go to the next one, but I don't know where to go or where am I going? And it's, it's yeah, it's interesting problem. So, um, also, I mean, uh, when we're talking about A11 project, uh, we are mostly talking about websites uh, on different uh, devices. Are we talking about desktop applications as well? And uh, what about mobile applications? Because the challenges are uh, different in different devices just because of the form factor. And you mentioned that um, in accessibility, the assistive technology, sorry, it has to have uh, be robust. So it should be, um, I mean, no matter what platform you use, you should still be able to use it like the responsive websites. But what about um, applications? Uh, not websites, but applications, applications which are inbuilt to the platform, Windows applications, desktop applications, mobile Android apps, iOS apps. What about those? Does A11Y project work uh, across those, uh, I mean, uh, applications as well? Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> in the short, okay. uh, a lot of native, um, a lot of native applications. So, you know, mail or um, kind of like basic text editing uh, utilize um, basically frameworks that the operating system has to construct interfaces and are, if not amazingly accessible, um, good enough to be operable. Um, it gets a little blurry. So like Microsoft produces the Office Suite, uh, which is not you know, a core part of the operating system, 
but is also, as I understand it, very accessible uh, compared to some other solutions. Um, and then extending that, uh, depending on how you build your app, either on a desktop, laptop, or on a mobile device, such as a phone or a tablet, can be as well, um, depending on if you are using kind of these native features, you get a little bit more built in. Um, and then if you go kind of off-roading and build your own, uh, there are attributes that you can include uh, to make sure that they, you know, describe themselves. So like you can, you know, if you have a UI kit, you can drag a button into your view and it'll be like, oh, okay, this is a button. Um, uh, the same way you can drop an image in if you want a fancy custom looking button, uh, you can describe it as such that it'll be announced as a button. Uh, so it'll take a little bit of extra work, but it is definitely possible. And I'd say it's incredibly important as well, because um, as you mentioned, phones are very popular and only becoming even more popular in emerging markets, uh, populations that have never been online before, or populations that have historically not had the income to access the internet are getting it. Um, and this is foreign countries, as well as I should point out, uh, native populations in the UK and the US, uh, where there is a lot of poverty. And apps are king. Um, apps are usually a lot friendlier towards bandwidth. So if you're on a metered data plan, um, they're, they come stock, a lot of them. So it never occurs to you to kind of go off and find an app. So um, I'd say it's it's very important. Um, and it's a slightly different way of building uh, compared to the web, but it is definitely very doable. And I'd say a little bit more manageable in that um, with an app, you typically have an idea of a little bit more of your hardware requirements and your kind of your screen requirements. Sure. Okay. That's that's good to know because, uh, as you said, the developing uh, economies they have now. Uh, I, mean, I mean, so many mobile phones are now entering into people's uh, houses, and everyone is getting online. And mobile first is now the current uh, thing. And Google is now ranking uh, websites based on that as well. They've changed their search algorithm. If you don't have a mobile site then your ranking goes down. So I think, yeah, that's that's quite an important feature. So so moving on from that, um, I mean, A11Y project checklist, everything is there, etc. But uh, which um, part of the economy does it impact the most? Does it uh, help the government organizations because they have to pro provide critical services to a lot of people? Does it help a lot of uh, open source developers does it help a lot of organizations so i mean as, as a maintainer what what are the trends that you normally see uh, with the adoption of the a11y uh, project and the checklist that you have published do you see a trend where the governments are adopting these standards more uh, frequently now or do you see that uh, there are more organizations that are adopting so what what kind of trends are you seeing across that space yeah um I'm seeing more private companies adopting it, which is great. Um, okay, interesting. And 
I'm seeing a lot of industry leaders adopt it proactively as a way to develop software, design and develop software, as opposed to a punitive model, which is we have been sued and so we must change. Um, and I do want to say that, you know, if you do get sued, it sucks, but uh, that person is well within their rights to do it. Um, accessibility is about protecting um, the rights of an individual to access you know, materials and services the same way anyone else can. Um, and it's important to keep that in mind. So if we wanna talk a little bit more about inclusive design, which includes accessibility, but is more proactive, I feel, um, I think that's great, which is you're coming into this mindset of, yes, there is the whole world, that's our audience. You know, how can we proactively accommodate them uh, what what decisions can we make earlier on in the process to ensure that anyone can use this? That's what I'm starting to see with a lot of the uh, trendier startups and kind of the the larger companies. Um, you know, Google just had its latest keynote, um, and access was kind of a top level billing. Uh, compare that to ten years ago, where it was kind of a more of a niche topic. Uh, Apple just rolled out um, its newest, you know, accessibility considerations for uh, the watch. I'm blanking on the feature names, but again, that's using they're using that as a marketing vehicle um, and not kind of a footnote in a release note on a web page no one will read, and that's huge. That is amazing. Yeah, I mean, it is it is um, like fascinating to think that where we've come from from what it was ten or twenty years ago. This is this is now you know a, a part of mainstream uh, media or marketing of of these big tech companies, and that makes a huge difference because a lot of the times when they start, a lot of a lot of other smaller companies follow, and it becomes norm. And that's that's what we want. We want this to be a, a normal, uh, a norm, an expected situation rather than a, a, an additional situation. So yeah, I mean that is. Um, but yeah, I mean uh, we have to remember that the the journey is not finished. I mean we, we're nowhere close to you know being fully inclusive yet. And uh, when everyone you know automatically thinks of all of these accessibility. Um, scenarios by default uh, then we can we can sort of um, think that we've we've reached our goal but that's that's far far away um, so, uh, what, yeah, so what uh, sorry I, I just want to have, have a question <laughs> because uh, I was uh, thinking about uh, the standards that you mentioned right uh, if everything is a standard then it becomes easy and if developers follow the standards then um, yeah, it's more accessible, the whole internet. But uh, we also have this WCAG. I was just Googling about it when I was researching a bit more about 11Y project. So web content accessibility guidelines. So uh, if you already have a guideline, how does 811Y project complement that? And are those guidelines similar to what 811Y project is doing? Uh, or are they different? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. Um, so kind of the, the first part um, is accessibility is a process. Uh, I am constantly learning about it. Um, 
I will have gotten it wrong, will get it wrong. Um, and one thing you can definitely feel, especially when reviewing the checklist or the web content accessibility guidelines, is that this is huge. Um, and the mindset that I keep that I think is very healthy is every little bit helps. So there's no perfect accessibility. There's only incremental change in a positive direction. Um, the community is actually very understanding and very appreciative of accessibility work. So, you know, it's one of those things when you start to do it, people start to notice. And one of my favorite things is when you're not even like actively paying attention and somebody kind of casually mentions it uh, and it's like, oh yeah, that's, that's amazing. I love it. Uh, Cause it means it's working. Um, so for the checklist and for the, the WCAG, which is how I pronounce the web content accessibility guidelines, there's a lot of debate about how to pronounce it. Um, the checklist serves as a gateway to the WCAG. So the checklist items map back to WCAG criteria, and the criteria are basically a numbered list of uh, rules which dictate access. Um, and I say rules because they're kind of higher level than like, here's how to implement this. It's more, if you have a kiosk, if you have a website, if you have like an ATM, um, anything that has a digital interface abides by these rules. Um, it's actually an ISO standard. So it predates a lot of web tech. <laughs> it's also um, kind of, if you map back government policy, it maps back to the WCAG as a legal standard. So if you really get into the reads of this or you get a really tenacious lawyer, it's eventually gonna go back to the WCAG um, as a way to determine if something is or is not accessible. The problem with the WCAG is it is very dense. Um, take any technical manual you've ever read and then multiply it <laughs> by, <laughs> by 10. Uh, and that's the WCAG. So it's not what I would say um, easy to parse as a beginner. And so first work is being done by the WCAG to address this. Uh, it is going through a major revision right now, uh, taking it from version two to version three. And I'm very excited about that. Uh, and then second, again, the checklist, we tried to take some of the most common, some of the most like critical um, issues and then put them out in a more plain language, easy to understand format. And so like certain ones will map directly back to one rule, certain kind of kind of cover two or three, uh, but it's more just like, this is something I can hit to like triage the biggest problems you might fix or you might encounter. Nice, nice. Um, so, I mean, yeah, the, that, that kind of uh, give me a better idea because I keep hearing about uh, WCAG, <laughs> if I use your pronunciation, <laughs> but uh, and A11Y project just came into my um, like Google search, and then I was like, okay, this is this is kind of interesting, and there are I think a lot of projects uh, which are um, uh, doing a lot of uh, work in the accessibility space. So, um, 
if someone like me or someone like Serenath and we want to contribute to the A11Y project, how do we begin? Where do we start? What can we do actually? I mean, if you, if you guys have done uh, such an amazing work, what else is there left to contribute? Oh, so much. <laughs> we will take any and all help anyone is willing to give. Um, we are open source. So uh, if you are comfortable using Git and code, um, we have an issue tracker on GitHub um, with some open issues. We have uh, basically a list of kind of posts we'd like to have written. Um, if you are not comfortable using uh, Git or code, uh, we also have workflows for writing new articles or making content changes, uh, including you know, different ways to contact us and work through uh, submissions. Uh, we post articles that are written by the community um, and we pay, which is a new development, which I'm very excited about. So um, it's $75 per article, which allows us to be a little bit competitive with other uh, publishing sources while also, you know, maintaining us as a volunteer-led effort. Um, we have uh, resources. So if you have ever found a resource that you think is really valuable for your workflow, that's something you can kind of, you can submit. Um, we have a newsletter if you'd like to participate passively just by, uh, you know, kind of reading what we put out. Uh, and that's a roll up of what we tweet out via Twitter throughout the week. And that's uh, kind of a hodgepodge of articles that deal with uh, programming and accessibility, uh, disability culture, kind of news in the industry, um, just kind of a little bit of everything to kind of get a better idea of what's going on. Um, so you can also follow us on Twitter or LinkedIn. Uh, we have an organization there as well. Um, and yeah, I, we, we try to make the project itself um, you, you know, inclusive and welcoming and easy to approach as well. We have contribution guidelines that kind of outline you know, how to best work with us. We have a content style guide for how to write your content. Uh, we also have a code of conduct, which I think is important for an inclusive community that outlines, you know, behavioral norms and what we tolerate and what we don't and why, um, which is all to say we would love, we would love any and all help. All right. I mean, that, that, that's marvelous because there's so many ways to be involved and contribute. And hopefully uh, the audience, listeners and viewers who are uh, tuning into this podcast, there, there will be many who would you know, would like to be involved or contribute in any way. So yes, uh, audience, I urge you guys to sort of check out the project, check out the website. And if it does interest you, or if you think you can contribute in any way, all of these different ways that Eric just mentioned, um, you know, in any way, any help would, would help uh, the project go further. So definitely, definitely check it out and uh, see if there are anything you can do. So what's, uh, what's, um, what are some of the future um, projects or future um, things that you have plans uh, for, for the project? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> um, we just went through a major redesign, um, mm -hmm. which I'm very happy with um, and recently have just kind of been fixing some of the kinks that have shaken out from that. Um, I'm happiest when the site 
is not doing much, um, which sounds a little weird, like, but it's, it's been around for, I think, 14 years, which is forever in internet time. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's got pretty good SEO placement and it's built on a stack that's pretty resilient. Um, it's 11D node uh, markdown SAS and Nunjux, um, which is kind of one step above vanilla HTML, <laughs> CSS, and JavaScript. Um, and what I like, like I think it's working best, like it's, its killer feature is that it shows up in search results. Um, I like it when people get just enough information to get to, to answer the question that they have, maybe entice them to learn a little bit more, but uh, put it down and get back to doing what they're doing and hopefully making it a little bit more accessible uh, after reading our content. Awesome. That is uh, that is just so so much eye-opening and insightful to know all of this information. And I'm actually feeling quite uh, um, quite well, if I want to say, privileged to know about this because, yeah, I, I I actually wasn't aware of the project at all. But now coming to know about it and finding out more, it is just amazing. And uh, hopefully, our audience will feel the same way, and they would uh, wanna be involved uh, in any way they can. <laughs> I was just uh, thinking about um, uh, some other aspects of disability. I mean, um, and this is coming from uh, your profile on A11Y project. And you mentioned about um, cognitive, uh, uh, emotional, um, uh, practical and physical needs. So I think we covered physical needs and maybe practicality. But how about cognitive and emotional needs? How does A11Y project uh, help with that or even accessibility? I mean, it's just for the benefit of all our viewers and listeners, because I think when we think about disability, we are uh, thinking only about physical disabilities, but there are some other types of disabilities as well that can impact the way uh, people interact with a digital product or service. Sure. Um, cognitive accessibility is huge. Uh, the WHO, the World Health Organization, um, did a survey of disability globally a few years back, and I'd say the overwhelming majority of disability is cognitive, um, like something like 70%. So of, of the entire world's population that's experiencing disability, the majority of that is uh, cognitive. And then there's an interesting twist to that as well, in that a lot of people that are experiencing cognitive disability may not identify as disabled. Um, so <laughs> I think that the number is even bigger, um, which is to say cognitive accessibility concerns are also tied to emotional, uh, disability concerns, depression, um, being one of the larger, uh, disability conditions, which affects your ability to operate in your environment. Um, which is to say that depression will actually affect your ability to process and act on information, um, which is both depressing and fascinating to think about, which is uh, this is, you know, not only a condition you can experience um, 
permanently uh, as something that is just part of how your brain works. Um, it can also be brought onto you environmentally. So stress from work, say a global pandemic without end. <laughs> um, so environmentally, it can be triggered. Um, but what that translates to is um, your ability to operate in the world. And part of operating in the world is utilizing technology. Um, and like a good example of that, just to kind of hammer the point home is like, if you've ever been stressed at a deadline at work and you're just trying to get something to compile and it won't, and you scream and you give up <laughs> and you come back to it the next day, feeling a little bit better. And, oh my God, it, it was right in front of you this entire time. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, a lot of the times, yeah, it, it, your brain doesn't work at its full, full, full efficiency when you are, you know, under stress or under depression. And yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, during the pandemic, the the rate or the statistics of of people in depression or other mental health condition has increased quite significantly. And it is something to be wary of, and you know, be you know, people um, you know, be take. It, it's good to take actions based on these based on this information, and we should think about what we can do to help this as well because this is you know i mean our lives have permanently changed in in many aspects yeah maybe we will go back to uh, some sort of normality but it will never be exactly how it what used to be like before and that could have various effects to you know for many people and it is important to be vigilant and aware of this and take actions to to help that yeah yeah i also i, I think like talking about it is good like destigmatizing it like depression mm -hmm. does exist it does impact people it especially impacts people in the pandemic um you know kind of on the cognitive uh there i mean there are other concerns that come with that um and i'd say another huge one and this is in the intersection of development and design is digital literacy uh so there's a bit of a, a fallacy here that smart people are computer literate and not smart people are computer illiterate. I've met smart people that are computer illiterate and I've met not smart people that are <laughs> computer literate. Um, and then I also question the definition of what computer literate is, which is like, can you use an entire operating system and all of its features? Do you know just enough to use the software that your job mandates that you use? Can you use it well? Um, and then what kinds of interfaces are those pieces of software using? So like if you've ever seen a cryptic button and you don't know what it does and you're afraid to touch it because you don't know if it'll like drop a database <laughs> or not, um, that's an example of kind of cognitive accessibility concerns, which is you don't have the mental framework that the person constructing the interface did to understand and take action on it with confidence. And that's not necessarily a condemnation of you. Um, that's more the person who built it. So making, making sure that if you do have a cryptic button like that, you do label it and then potentially even add like some warnings there where it's like, are you sure you want to do this? And maybe tell them why they don't want to do it. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. A lot of the times I do come across softwares or, you know, dialog boxes where it's it's not clear at all. And uh, I, I am here confused thinking, what, what, what do I, where do I go from here? And then, you know, having to go back to Google and describe the situation, it, it's not, it's not good design. And uh, yeah, absolutely. Designers have to think about so many of these things. And this reminds me of... Um, Another thing that uh, happened during the pandemic, actually, um, the Robinhood, um, the app, uh, I think, became quite popular in in US for stock trading. And the way they uh, show the balance of of, uh, one's one's account, uh, sometimes the balance is not cleared or the the money has left the account, but it still shows. And it it wasn't a good design. And uh, a, a person, I think, took his own life thinking that they have lost a large sum of money, but they actually didn't. It's because of the design that they misunderstood their, their, their account balance. And this is how serious implications there can be with, with bad designs. And uh, absolutely, I mean, designers have this massive responsibility to actually look at all kinds of perspective and think about what is a good design. And so, 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 you know, people are not confused and actually, you know, being able to do what they're there to do. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember that event as well. And it's, it's tragic. Um, and I think it's also illustrative of the point of um, more stuff is going digital and this is real and this is important. Um, and then I know we like to harp on developers for not making things accessible, but most of it is design. It's the design layer. Um, yes. And design and uh, requirements. I mean, I was, I was working on a government project uh, quite recently and, um, because as a tester, I was just trying to give them uh, feedback about how the, uh, the user journey should be like, have the thought about this button. Uh, they missed out a delete button and then uh, how do you cancel and come out and is it prominent? Can I read it clearly? Is it like high contrast? I think uh, that those kind of things are quite important, especially from a for a government service. And here in UK, they have uh, guidelines, which is really good. Uh, but yeah, I, I see the relevance that, yeah, it's not developers fault that they built a system because they have to look at the design and they have to look at the requirements. They build what is asked of them. They don't, they're not building something uh, creatively until, unless it's their own project. So yeah, we should not blame developers for everything. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's, it's a shared concern and yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I wish I had more QA testers like you <laughs> as a designer. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, I mean, um, I was just um, talking to someone uh, just today and uh, we were discussing about uh, a QA as a gatekeeper or a quality as a shared responsibility. And I think mm-hmm. people are now slowly moving away from the concept that, okay, QA is a gatekeeper. No, it's a shared responsibility. And it starts right from the top level, the CEO. How, how do they see their product? Uh, how do they see their service and uh, how how are they enabling the organization to deliver a good quality product are the processes uh, there uh, are the people enabled are the people making the right decisions writing the right requirements design development testing so i think it's a shared responsibility yeah yeah i agree um, my favorite way to work is collaboratively so um like in the before times sitting right next to the developer 
uh, and chatting with them as opposed to like throwing it over the wall. Um, and I think like, you touch on a really interesting thing about accessibility here where it is uh, a shared concern in that, you know, designers can be making accessible design decisions the same way developers can be making accessible development decisions the same way QA can be testing um, using assistive technology or using that tab key. Uh, it just, it has to get socialized into these workflows, um, which is the, the, the trick. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this, this was a very insightful conversation. I think our audience will benefit greatly from all this, all the, all the things that we talked about. Um, is there anything, I mean, I, we, we have kind of gone over an hour, so I'm just thinking, is there, is there anything else you would like to um, mention, uh, Eric? Oops, to our audiences. Um, accessibility is <laughs> uh, beneficial to all um, and required for many. Uh, it does not to have to be an overwhelming process where you have to get everything right. It is a journey, um, and every little bit change, every little change uh, compounds and makes things better for everyone. And it's a very friendly and welcoming community. Uh, the A11Y hashtag is a great way if you do Twitter to kind of poke around and see what's going on. Uh, don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid to um, reach out and email somebody if, if they put that information out there. And um, just thank you for listening and for considering it. Thank you. Thank you very much, Eric. I mean, this, this was uh, actually very eye-opening for me as well. And hopefully our audience will, will um, you know, check out the project and uh, be involved in one way or another.